0: As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can remember on Christmas, in the Christmas season the light our Savior brought into the world that is coming. We pray that you would speak to us once again that glorious good news of the one who was born unto us, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, that you would open your word to us now and cause its preaching to shine into all of our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of you in the face of Jesus Christ, your Son so that we may believe in him and have life in his name. Hear us for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. On many of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1026. Matthew, chapter 1. We want to read together about the birth of Jesus Christ as Matthew records it for us in Matthew chapter 1. So we're going to begin our reading at verse 18 and read through verse 25. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow is Christmas. I hope that's not news to you. Um, Tomorrow is Christmas, and I certainly hope that all of you have a Merry Christmas. But as God's people, it's particularly a day where we can remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus has come into the world. Uh, the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I thought it would be good for us to think about an account of our Lord's birth from the Word of God, and we want to do that from Matthew's Gospel, uh, because for Matthew, this is where the redemptive history of God's people finds its fulfillment. Um, If we began at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we would read through that genealogy that Matthew lays out where he talks about the history of God's people really going from Abraham to King David, from King David to the exile, and from the exile to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son, the king that everyone has been waiting for. It's been said that Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the king. Uh, that Matthew's main point is to talk about how the king has come into the world uh, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who Matthew tells us right out of the gate is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the promised king come into the world. And in this account of the birth of the King, the birth of the Christ that Matthew gives to us, the Holy Spirit really is giving us the glorious meaning of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we want to think about that and think about how the Holy Spirit tells us the story of Jesus coming into the world and how he explains to us the importance of his coming. And so we want to think about this first by seeing a moment of crisis. That the story begins with, and then a message of hope that's brought by the angel, and finally a mission of importance that comes to Joseph and that also comes to all of us. Um, and so we want to think about that a moment of crisis, a message of hope, and a mission of importance. Um, the story begins with a moment of crisis. We have that description of Joseph's crisis in Matthew. Uh, 18, the very first verse, now the birth of Jesus took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Most of us are probably familiar with the details of this story. Uh, probably many of us have heard sermons on this and have uh, had these details explained to us. But it's very important that we not, gla- you know, not just rush over these things, that we ponder the details that are given to us here. Um, sometimes maybe it's when stories are most familiar to us that we most need to pause and really reflect on what we are being told and to enter into uh, the crisis that Joseph is facing here. Um, In Israel, they had a step between sort of engagement and marriage that they called betrothal. Uh, We just have engagements and weddings, and we know that our engagements are relatively easy to break off. If people decide not to get married, they can break that off rather easily. But if you are betrothed in that culture, that was a more significant arrangement. You were considered at that point already husband and wife. You were not living together yet. The wedding day had not yet come, but it required a divorce to break up that betrothal. And so Mary would have been considered Joseph's wife at law at this time, even though she was probably still living with her parents and the wedding day had not yet come. And that's why it's significant and especially difficult for Joseph to find out that she's pregnant. Right? Um this Christmas season I always feel really sorry for Mary. Um, And the reason I feel sorry for her is because no one would have believed that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That it was the work of the Holy Spirit that had brought this child to her. I just imagine this teenage girl and everyone looking at her in her pregnancy and thinking she's done something wrong. Um, And how hard it would have been for anybody to believe her you know, she would be saying, an angel came and said to me this would happen, that the Holy Spirit would, even though I'm a virgin, would bring this child to me. Uh, And imagine her trying to explain this to her parents when it's obvious she's pregnant. I mean, all of the things that go along with this are difficult. And here's one of the great difficulties. Joseph, who is supposed to be her husband, finds out that she's pregnant and makes the only conclusion he can make um, based on what he knows that somehow she's been unfaithful to him. We know that's not true, right? The Story tells us that she has a child that's from the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous work that the Spirit has wrought, but Joseph doesn't know that. Uh, So this story takes place after they are betrothed, but before they are married, before the wedding day and before the wedding night have taken place, and Mary is pregnant. And so Joseph is trying to decide what to do about this, and we're told that at this point he has made up his mind what he has to do. Uh, Verse 19 tells us, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Um, He is a just man, and so knowing that God has an importance that he puts on purity and fidelity, finding that his wife-to-be has not been faithful to him, thinks that really divorce is his only option, uh, but the Bible tells us that he is a just man. Uh, Just means that he acts in accordance with what God requires. Um, And I think the justice of uh, the righteousness of Joseph's life is seen not only that he decides to do something that the law would say is right, um, but also does something that the law would say is kind, which is that he has resolved to divorce her quietly. Um, There's a way to divorce loudly in this culture publicly in the culture. And it wasn't just you did that if you wanted to be mean, right? Because what would the natural assumption that people would make about Joseph? They would make the assumption that he was the father of this child and that they had not waited till marriage. They had not, they'd both not maintained the purity of the marriage bed. And this would have been a way for Joseph publicly to say, I'm not in the wrong here. I didn't do anything wrong. This is not my sin, um, right? It would have been a way for him to publicly have himself be absolved from any wrongdoing in this matter, but Joseph knows that to do that, to do that loudly, to do that publicly, may absolve him of wrongdoing in the eyes of people, but would bring disgrace on Mary. Um, for her sake, right, not wishing to put her to shame, he, d- he resolves to divorce her quietly. Um, And, you know, we can skip over this part of the familiar story and just want to rush on to the importance of the angel's message and the Lord coming. But we learned something very important, I think, about justice here from the way uh, Joseph behaves. We're being told in the scripture here that Joseph is a man after God's own heart. Uh, He does justice. He does the right thing, given what's happened here. But he does the right thing in the right way. He does justice, but he loves kindness. That's why we read from Micah 6 as our reading of the law because because Joseph is portrayed to us as that kind of man. He does justice, but he loves kindness. And he walks humbly with God. It's interesting that we're told that he has resolved on a course of action, but he's still considering these things. He's resolved what to do, but he's still thinking about them. He's still pondering whether this is the right course of action. And I think it's not too much of a stretch to say we see him in doing this as walking humbly with his God. Proverbs 15.28 tells us that the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. He's still considering, He's he's made a decision, but he's still considering whether this is the best thing to do whether this is the right thing to do. And as God often does for his people when we are in need of his counsel, in need of his direction, he comes to us and helps us. And that's what we find here, that God comes to Joseph as he's considering these things and speaks to him a profound message of hope. Meets this moment of crisis with a message of hope. It comes from an angel, which just means messenger an angel who brings a message to Joseph in the dream um, and says something rather significant, right? Joseph needs help with this domestic problem he's having. It's a serious issue for him. But the angel's message is significant because it tells him that this is beyond just the trouble of a man and his wife-to-be. As serious as those things are, as serious as they would have been for Joseph, the angel's message comes and tells him that something more significant is happening here. Um, and I think there's two particular things of significance to note in the message that the angel brings to him in his dream. The first is in the way the angel addresses him. Right? How, does the, how does the angel address him in the dream? He says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Now, it's probable that Joseph has never been called this before. Um, he may have some vague notion that he's descended from David, Right, The way sometimes you meet people who are descended from someone famous. Uh, when I was in seminary, there was someone who was descended directly from Ulysses S. Grant. Um, you know, it's kinda, Maybe it's something you know. Maybe it's a, a family factoid that gets passed around. But certainly in life, no one would have referred to Joseph as the son of David. Right, we know from the word of God that he was a poor carpenter. And probably no one ever came to him and said, Son of David, build me a table. Right? This is not how he would have lived life, but it's significant that this is how the angel addresses him. That's not how anyone else might think of him. That's not how anyone else might speak to him, but it's how God speaks to him. It's significant for God, even if it's significant for no one else, that he's addressed as the son of David. That tells him right out of the gate and tells us that this is bigger than just Joseph. This is something that involves the whole house of David. Just as a couple weeks ago when we thought about the prophecy of, that Isaiah brought to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, the prophecy that's recounted here for us and quoted by Matthew, we, we, we noted that when the Lord came to King Ahaz, this was, it was a bigger issue than just Ahaz. Sort of the whole house of David and its obedience to God was on the line in the way that God came to King Ahaz. And in King Ahaz's failure to do what God had told him to do, not only did his kingdom fall, but really the whole house of David came down with him. Uh, His failure was bigger than him. And we're being told, and Joseph's being told, that this issue is bigger than him. Uh, This is coming to him not just as a righteous man, but as a son of David, Um, that this is the great moment of redemptive history that was promised to David, come, that Messiah's, Messiah, great David's greater son, is coming into the world. So that address to Joseph is very significant. And then of course the revelation that's made in this message of hope to Joseph is very significant. Uh, the first revelation is about his, his wife-to-be Mary. And the angel tells him plainly that she is not guilty of any sin, quite the opposite. The child that is in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous work of God. This is an an act of the divine Holy Spirit upon her, not the act of some kind of wickedness on her part. Um, This is a Holy Spirit thing. This is a divine act that has been accomplished. So that first revelation is an important one for Joseph as he's been pondering these things, to know that there is no sin in his wife and no reason he shouldn't take her to be his wife. But of course, the second important revelation is about the child she is carrying, that she will give birth to a son and you are to call his name Jesus. Um, now, when people are pregnant, they always have either a son or a daughter. So, hearing that she's bearing a son maybe isn't of the greatest revelation to Joseph in that moment. And the name that the child is to be given is probably a fairly common name in Israel. You know, it's likely that when Joseph was growing up in class, there was more than one Jesus in his class. Um, this is just the Greek version of the name Joshua, um, and so probably this is not a very uncommon name either for people to have. And so there's nothing necessarily earth shattering in those two pieces of information, but the most shattering piece of information, the one that would have hit Joseph like a bolt of lightning is that you're to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Um, that's That's the real message of importance that comes to him is that what he will do, that Jesus won't just be his name, which means Yahweh is salvation, Uh, But this is actually what he will do. His name will describe who he is and what he will do. He is Yahweh's salvation. Now come in the flesh to save his people from their sins. The he here is emphatic from the angel. He and no other will save his people from their sins. That's clearly telling Joseph that the promise of salvation that God has made to his people in the one Messiah who is coming is being fulfilled in this child. Your wife is carrying him. The one we've all been waiting for. The one who's going to come and save his people from their sins. And that message is of such importance That message is so profound and glorious that we need to make sure that we understand what he's saying, understand the significance. That's why I took the time earlier in the service to talk about what sin is, right? It's the want of conformity or transgression of God's law. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love our neighbors. He doesn't want to do things that are against them because those things bring with them a severe problem for us. Sin is incredibly important for us. That's why there's all kinds of other things we can think about at Christmas and all kinds of other things that are important to learn from God's Word, all kinds of other needs that we have. Joseph was pondering a serious problem that he had. But the angel comes with the announcement of someone who's going to come and solve the most significant problem that he has and the most significant problem that all of us have, which is our sin. Because what happens as a result of our sin? Sin brings with it a penalty against us. And sin enslaves us under its power. And so when we have the announcement of a Savior who will save us from sin, we have to understand how he saves us from both of those things. First, from the penalty of sin. Right, we heard earlier that the wages of sin is death. And that remembrance of Paul is really casting his, he's in doing that, he's casting his mind back to the Garden of Eden, where the first thing that God told his people is The day you transgress this law, you will will surely die. That's the penalty that sin brings with it is the curse of death. And Joseph would have known this as someone who knew his Bible. He would remember that when God proclaimed his name to Moses, he proclaimed glorious things about how he was a compassionate and forgiving God, but he also proclaimed in Exodus 34-7 that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sin brings with it a penalty. And so the announcement of a Savior In the first place is an announcement that God's people will be saved from sin's penalty. Uh, The penalty, that death, that's both physical and eternal. We will be saved by this child from the penalty of sin. And how does Jesus become a savior from our sins, saving us from the penalty of our sins? By taking our penalty on himself on the cross. It was there that he paid the wages of our sin. And that's why he came into the world to be a savior, to save us from what our sins deserve. Because our sins deserve condemnation, body and soul. And that's what Jesus came to do, to take care of the problem of the penalty of our sins by dying for us on the cross. The Belgian Confession puts it beautifully. It says, Jesus came to assume the human nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order that to bear in the human nature the punishment of sin. In order to bear in the human nature the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. Because people had sinned, Jesus became a person like us. In everything like us except for sin that he could go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins and deliver us from it. And our Lord has accomplished our salvation from sin by his cross, by paying the penalty for our sin there and dying a death both body and soul for our sins in our place. And what he accomplished on the cross has saved us from the penalty of sin. And it's applied for us who believe in him by grace, through faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that we can understand that Jesus came to save from sin and has saved from sin by delivering all who believe from the penalty of sin. That's what Paul celebrates in Romans three twenty three to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift Out of his love for us, the Father sent his Son into the world to save us from the penalty that our sins would have brought on us. And out of his love for us, Jesus Christ came into, became like us, came into the world and entered into our humanity so that he might save us from death by dying in our place on the cross and paying the penalty of our sins. Um, that's also the point the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why it's important to understand that for all who believe in Jesus Christ, he has saved you from the penalty of your sins. He has died the death that you would have died for you on the cross. That he was pierced for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. That on him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we have been healed. We need to be saved from the penalty of sins. And the wonderful announcement is Jesus comes to save his people from the penalty of sin. We also understand that Jesus saves us from the power of sin. We not only need to be saved from sin's penalty, we need to be saved from sin's power. It doesn't just make us guilty before the Lord and make us worthy of death, it enslaves us. Uh, Hebrews 2 made reference also to that slavery that sin brings upon us, the tyranny of the devil that comes on account of sin, the power that it has over us. In Romans 6, Paul talks about how we've been set free from the slavery of sin. That without being saved, we would be trapped in a body of death. Not just guilty and having a penalty to expect, but also be under the dominion of sin's power. Uh, To live a life that would be a body of death, trapped and enslaved, having no other choice but to obey our evil desires and to obey the will of the devil. And that's why God's word comforts us also to know that Christ is a savior who saves from the power of sin by his death. Jesus sets us free from the enslaving power of sin. Paul talks about being enslaved, but he also talks about being set free in Romans 6, 6, and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. It's the wonderful good news of Christmas that Christ comes not just to break the penalty of sin, but to break its power. He came to set captives free who are under the power of sin. He came to release us from the tyranny of the devil. It's that wonderful statement that John makes in 1 John 3.8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That he came to break sin, break its power, break the devil's tyranny. And that also was accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. He once for all broke sin's power over us. But also he brings his power to work in us by his spirit. His spirit who is given to us creates in us a power, an influence against Sin, that's why Peter, that's why we read as our assurance of pardon from 1 Peter 2, 24. Not only that he bore in our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, but also that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, uh, so that we might walk with him. Peter says, by, by his wounds we have been healed, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power. The power of sin over us has been definitively destroyed by the death of the Son of God, On the cross, we have been set free from it. And then he systematically destroys the remnants of sin that are dwelling in us by his spirit, uh, through the sanctifying work of the spirit that is rooting out all the remainder of the sin in us. And we have in us the Spirit of God at work who is against sin. Right? The good news that that Paul gives us in Galatians five seventeen that the spirit the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That the Spirit goes to war against the sinful desires that remain in us. Thomas Chalmers famously and beautifully described this as the expulsive power of a new affection. There is a new love that's created in us by the Holy Spirit that has the power to drive out sin. We are no longer powerless against us. The desires of the Spirit are at work in the people of God, driving out the desires of the sinful flesh, so that the power of sin that remains in us until our dying day is no match for the power of our Savior's Spirit. It will be destroyed. It will be destroyed in God's people because of what Christ has done by His death and by His Spirit. We need to understand that about our Savior. He has has definitively destroyed the power of sin by his death on the cross, and he is systematically destroying the remainder of sin by the power of his spirit at work in us. That's what makes what Joseph hears such radically good news. Here is the Savior who saves God's people from their real need, from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. And the message that Joseph is given is the one who will do this is that little baby that your wife is carrying around. We don't know how far along Mary is at this point. She's probably showing. That's how people know she's pregnant. Um, So we don't know how how far along Jesus is in his development at this point. And that's, I think, the call to put ourselves in Joseph's place, to hear this message and to realize how radical the call to believe this would have been to him, right? All the hopes that you have, all the hopes that God's people have ever had are bound up with this particular child that your particular wife is carrying. And he needs to understand that because he needs to respond to that. There's a mission of importance that he's given in response to this message of hope. There's a mission that he is to undertake. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. One commentator pointed out that Joseph's call to act here is much more Difficult to obey than we might typically think. right? Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. right? Throw out all these fears you've been meditating on about her unfaithfulness. Uh, she's been faithful. She's been pure. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. And take this child as your own son. Adopt him as your own. Bring him into your family as your son. That's the significance of Joseph being called to give this child his name. To call his name Jesus would be a public act of Joseph acknowledging that this son is his. It would be the public way he brought his son, this son into his family. Calling his name Jesus would be publicly, loudly announcing, this child is mine. It's along the same lines of what God says in Isaiah 43, one when he says, I have called you by name, you are mine. I have named you. You are mine. That's what God is calling Joseph to do, to give Jesus a name and say, he is mine. Bring him into your family. And that would have not just significance for Joseph and Mary and for their little family, but it would have significance for God's people more broadly. Right? Because as Matthew has taken pains to trace out, Joseph is descended from David. And so to bring him into the family, to bring him into his family, is to bring him into the house and the line of David. Right? They didn't make the distinctions we tend to make about you know, natural children and adopted children. And even when you adopt children into your family, there, there are legal things you have to take care of. But in that culture, if you said this child is mine, he just became yours. He just was part of the family. That's all the way people thought about him. And so the significance of him doing this is to bring Jesus into the house and the line of David. To bring him into the family. Now, that's what Joseph is really being called to do here. And it's significant because it's the fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Isaiah 7.14. And the reason we looked at that a couple weeks ago was to see that wonderful promise that we remember from Matthew's gospel here was a sign of judgment against the house of David. Remember how God had said to King Ahaz, ask of any sign to confirm the word. And Ahaz said, I won't ask. And so God said, then I will give you a sign. And it's a sign that will show that the house of David has wearied our God. And what is the sign going to be? The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. God will bring forth a king for the house of David without the help of the sons of David. A virgin will conceive and bear the son. The sons of David will have nothing to do with the, with the son who's to come. And you see how that rejection of King Ahaz is now being remedied by what Joseph does. Because the house of David is now being called to receive this child who God has brought forth by an act of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary to bring him into the family of David. and To make him part of the house of And the lineage of David. You see how important this is? That Joseph does what he's been called to do? And how different he is than King Ahaz was? Um, Ahaz was a king. He ruled on a throne. He had a kingdom. Joseph doesn't have a king. Isn't a king. Doesn't have a kingdom. Doesn't rule on a throne. He's a poor carpenter. But he acts more like a son of David than Ahaz ever did. Because what does he do in response to the word that the angel gives him? When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see how God has beautifully worked restoration for the house of David in this? By having a son of David welcome this child into the house of David make him a part. It's a wonderful reminder that we are adopted into the family of God, and Jesus became like us and had to be adopted into the family of David. Uh, Being adopted doesn't make you less of a child of our Father in heaven. Uh, And Jesus teaches us that lesson right from the beginning. But there's a mission of importance here, not just for Joseph, but for all of us. Because notice how Matthew celebrates that all of this took place to fulfill what Isaiah had spoken. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's an interesting way of quoting what Isaiah says, because that's not exactly what Isaiah said. Because Isaiah had said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. But the Holy Spirit changes it here. He's allowed to do that. It's his word. Right? And he does it for an important reason. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Who is the they here? Is it just Joseph? Is it just Mary, I don't think that's true. We're not told anything here about Mary naming him Jesus. Who is the they in this text? I think people are writers who see this as the people whose sins are forgiven by this son. It's not just Joseph that will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It is all the people who are saved from their sins who will recognize that here is their hope, here is their savior, here is God with us. One person put it this way, the people whose sins are forgiven by Jesus are the ones who will gladly call him God with us. And Christ's incarnation, his coming in the flesh testifies to us, as another person said, that if we are united to Christ by faith, we possess God himself. There's a mission of importance in this text for all of us, and that we are all, the, and it's calling all of us to be the people who put our faith and trust in Jesus and find Him to be for us, God with us. Because the text doesn't just want us hearing that Jesus is a Savior for sin. Jesus wants, the Lord wants us to find our salvation in Jesus, He wants Him to save us from our sins. He wants all of us to call him God with us and to recognize him as our savior. It's not just enough to say Jesus is a savior, you have to say Jesus is my savior by faith and trust in him. That's what this story is about, giving a mission of importance for all of us so that everyone who hears this story would believe that Jesus is the Savior who came to save you from your sins and that you would believe in his name and have him with you as God with you forever. May all of us here find our salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And he may, be, may he be with you this Christmas and every Christmas, God with you forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this message of hope, of a Savior who has come to save us from our sins. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins by the power of his death. He has canceled the penalty of sin for those who believe in you. He has broken the power of sin. Uh, The the ultimate power of sin has been broken. The continuing power of sin is being broken down by his Spirit. So we thank you for giving us the Savior that your people need. May we all put our faith and trust in him and be those this Christmas who call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Hear us and help us for his sake, for we pray in his name. Amen.